Go ahead and grab your Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a seat near you. Feel free to take it home with you if you need a Bible. While you're turning, I want to welcome back the Kings. Elder Radley was in Antigua with his family this past week, ministering to a church there. A full week of preaching. Uh, he didn't get to have any fun while he was there, he said. He just had to preach and preach and preach. Didn't leave the church. Was either in prayer or preaching the whole time. Now, but uh, uh, we were praying for you, brother, and your family. And uh, we missed having you here. But we were uh, proud to have had you out uh, extending, extending the gospel in much clarity, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I know you just sat down. Why don't you stand back up? We're gonna, we don't always do this, but I'm going to ask you to stand while we read. Chapter 11 this morning. Apostle Paul says this to the church at Corinth. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not have his head covered since he is in the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, there is neither woman, uh, neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Lord, we stand because this is uh, there's a lot here. And I just have us all recognize this morning that we stand under the authority of your will and your word. Uh, it is. It is our very life, Scripture says, your words, they're not idle words, they are our very life. And Lord, I, I was encouraged as we sang. Take. Take our lives, take our moments, take our days, Father, if that is the cry of our heart. And I'm convinced that it is the cry of many here. That we are completely abandoned to your will, to your desire, to your design for us. If we trust you with all of that, Lord, 1 Corinthians 11 won't be as daunting of a task as it as it might be. If. uh, Well, if we're the ones still holding on to our own life. Lord, if we are in awe of the cross, if we if we see your great love for us, 
First Corinthians 11 won't be as daunting of a passage, Father. We will be free to trust you, to give you our moments, our days, our life, to give you our all. And it, and it makes complete sense. For those who see the wonder of the cross, for those to whom you've drawn back the mystery from old uh, of the cross and Christ and that redemptive sacrifice, Father, for those it makes complete sense that we give you everything we have and we trust you right down to our very natures and our distinctive designs. So, Lord, as we uh, as we walk through this passage, help us not to get not to get caught in the bushes, but to see the the forest for the trees. Help us to see the point. Help us to see the heart of the apostle. Not just for the specific lesson, but for the Christ who redeemed us. Uh, And even this, Father, cause us to be in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is a a tough chapter. It is chock full. Last week when I delayed this message, I, at the very end, going into the last week's message, I said to myself, uh, why don't we break it into two messages? Now we've condensed it. We're going to take care of the whole thing today. I, I could spend uh, one day each in many of these verses. We're not going to. And that's OK. Uh, sometimes it's better for us not to get bogged down looking at individual passages. When I when I feel like uh, there are times we need to see we need to see the whole picture. So I want this morning you to see the whole picture. I want you to walk away, not just with a teaching on manhood and womanhood, because that's where we are. We're on the back leg of our manhood womanhood series. But I want you to see I want you to see Christ in the end. I want you to see the glory of the cross. I want you to see his mercy and his grace. I want you to see that he's got it all figured out. He's left nothing to chance. And I want you to you to leave here. Not just with a different understanding of your manhood or your womanhood or how to relate to the opposite sex, but with a with a clearer understanding of God's heart for humanity. Amen. Uh, let me say this. Uh, I can't I can't say it too many times that none of these messages are independent. I've actually put some summary sheets together. If you've missed any of the first leg of this series, uh, there are three summary sheets for where we've been. We've laid a foundation in the Old Testament. We made a turn a couple weeks ago by trying to put a a vision or a definition to what it really means to be a man different than a woman and what it really means to be a woman biblically different than a man. Uh, Those are there back for you. Uh, Now, in this leg of the series, we're on the home stretch where we are going to briefly examine the New Testament passages that most inform what we believe about our manhood and womanhood. Okay, first Corinthians 11 is a tough one. It's a it's a it's a debated one. Because there's so much really to explain here, but I think we can go through it fairly easily and get the get the point and walk away from this message with with a clear understanding uh, based on everything we've said. Grant you, we can walk away from this passage affirming the foundation that was laid for us in the Old Testament. All right. So here we go. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Most scholars put that back in chapter 10 as sort of the culminating verse uh, to chapter 10 and everything that has come before it. I, I think it's a good transition. As I said, as we were singing these songs, this is the very attitude we have to have going into these next chapters of 1 Corinthians. 
for the rest of the book, Paul is going to directly challenge them on some of their practices. Specifically this morning, we're going to see that he's challenging the manhood, womanhood relationships in the life of the ministry of the church. That's the first one he's going to address, and he, and he does it pretty directly. There are some issues here that he has to direct, but the attitude, I think, sets itself up in the, in the heart of Paul. It was seen in Christ, and it has to be evident in us as we go into these types of teachings. Paul says, uh, Christ was a certain way, and I'm imitating that. He would say in other places, uh, he, he loves to speak of the humility of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ. That's most likely what he has in mind here when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's going to ask them to do some things that might go against their human nature, that their flesh might war against, that they might not have a natural tendency to want to be submissive towards. To place themselves under the authority of, of his apostolic teaching, because he is an example of. Of what Christ was an example of him to. And so I, I like verse 1 being as a part of this text. And verse 2 really introduces the text as well. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. Paul is quick to point out that they have done some things well. Uh, namely, they have not forgotten his teachings. It's not so much about the Apostle Paul that they are remembering, but they are remembering his teachings. He said, and you have held firmly to the traditions. There are some traditions in Scripture that are negative traditions, traditions simply of men. That's not what he's referring to here. When he says you've held firm to the traditions, he means that what we've taught you about the gospel, what we've said is from the Lord, you've held firmly to that. And he commends them for that, that they've stuck to it. And frankly, as I was praying through this passage over the last couple of weeks, those two words, hold firm, are really the summary for the whole text for me. What do I want for our church? Well, I want us to hold firm to the word. I want us to hold firm to what God teaches, not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not, not to put our finger in the wind of society and of our culture to see where the winds of America are blowing and line up accordingly. Our job is to hold firm to the traditions of God, not the traditions of men. So Paul says, you've done well. But in verse 3, he introduces the first, the first place where they need some clarification. And here it is related to our manhood, womanhood series. But I want you to understand something. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. We could, and last week when I planned to teach this message, we were going to spend the entire time in that verse. Uh, we could very easily do that again. Let me, let me unpack this verse for you briefly, and then I want to show you how the rest of the chunks of this chapter that we've already read undergird that one verse. The primary principle Paul is trying to uh, effect in the church in Corinth here is the principle of headship and submission and its goodness. There is a headship and there is a submissiveness that belongs to manhood and womanhood, and it is good and it is godly and it is true and it is divinely inspired. And I think he starts with his strongest argument here in verse three, and he just piles on extras throughout the rest of the chapter. So here it is. I thought as I was preparing to teach this, I thought I'm going to skip verse three. I'm going to show you the rest of his argument and then I'm going to come back because verse three is really it's really the point and it's really the climax. But I couldn't figure out a good way to do that and, and make it make sense. So here we go. We're going to take it as it comes. But I want you to understand 
You need to be clear on this, church. There was obviously a misunderstanding. There was obviously some problems in the church. He'll get to the specific problems in just a moment. By way of giving you a heads up, the problem is that they didn't quite understand how men and women were to relate in the public venue of church and ministry. And there was some there was some disunity going on. Is there a is there a rightful headship given to manhood? Is there a rightful submissiveness given and granted to womanhood? Paul's going to say there is. And he starts off with verse three, his his strongest argument for it. It's not only. It's not only found in manhood and womanhood, but it pervades the whole universe. It pervades the whole universe. He starts off with three statements. Christ is the head of every man. And by head in this verse, he means the authority, the lead. That's what it means to be the head. Christ is the head of every man. In two of these statements, Paul would expect the church to strongly amen. They are givens. They're they're granted arguments to say that Christ is the head of every man. Everyone would stand up and say, that's right. Preach it. Amen. No doubt. I mean, it's a given. Is Christ the head of every man? The church in Corinth, even in all their struggles, they would they would most likely say amen. I, I think Paul was convinced of that. So he starts off with that. Christ is the head of every man, not just believers, but he's the head of, of every man on earth. And he moves on. Interestingly, he doesn't. He doesn't do this in a hierarchical order. He moves from saying Christ is the head of every man to the issue at hand. You amen that. Now, let me give you the tough one. The man is the head of the woman. And now people kind of sit down in their chairs and they're like, well, I don't really know about that one. Uh, that's a little more difficult. And that's that's where the issue is. That's the point he's addressing. Would, would you notice how he sandwiches this verse? Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And then he comes right behind that with another given, another undeniable statement. And a statement that if it was left out, we'd be sorely lacking. It is it is one of the most clarifying and beautiful statements that we could read in regard to this issue of manhood and womanhood. He says, God is also the head of Christ. Three relationships, three statements, three heads, and three submissive responses. In each case, and in every case, Paul implies that it is good and right and by design. God is the head of every man. Amen. We agree with that. At the end, he comes back and says that God is the head of Christ. Of of course. And by God, he's referring to the Father God. Christ willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father to come to earth in a redemptive plan to die willingly. Even though it was a submissive role, even though he had to submit his will to the Father, he does it willingly. He asks in the garden, take this cup from me, Father. But whatever your will is, I I willingly submit to the will of the Father. Notice a couple things here. I've already pointed out one. That we do not have an order here that would imply that women are at the bottom of the totem pole. If that were the case, if that were the heart of Paul, you would have expected him to say that God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of every woman. And that would have left women at the bottom. Very wisely and I think very intentionally and I think the spirit interceded uh, obviously on behalf of the apostle here in his writing. 
He puts woman in the, in the middle, held by two amazing truths. Christ is the head of every man. Amen. Not only that, but God is the head of Christ. Now, let me tell you the impact of that. The reaction of all of us, men and women, I would say, when we read that man is the head of a woman here in Paul's teaching would be to strive against that a little bit. Our nature goes against that. I've said this before in the series that our natural inclination is to say that if one is over the other, if one has authority and one is called to be under authority, the one under authority naturally in our flesh feels like they've been slighted. We naturally war against that. We naturally feel like that must mean that one is better than the other. This whole time we've been trying to lay a foundation that that is not necessarily true. It can be true, but it's not necessarily true. And it's not the testimony of Scripture when it comes to manhood and womanhood. Do men and women carry different roles, responsibilities? Yes, they do. Is man granted the headship? Is woman granted a submissive role? Yes, they are. I, I can't change Scripture. That's, that's what it says. The good thing is that even that is for our, our, our great benefit. But listen, it does not in any way, in any shape or any form, infer that the one who is submissive is less than the one they submit to. As evidenced in the final statement of the three, God is the head of Christ. In any way can we say that Christ is lower than God the Father? He is not. What we know about Trinitarian theology, all right, that's the big way of saying what we know about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, is that they are equal in essence and nature and value and worth, but they serve different roles in the church. I think statement number one, Christ is the head of every man. Amen. Christ uh, was submissive to God. God is the head of Christ. I think they would amen that because they, 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 they probably understood what he meant. That, yeah, Christ was submissive. And what they also understood and were to infer and apply then to the second statement is this. That although Christ was submissive to the will of the Father, it made him no less. It made him no less. He was equal in worth. He was equal in nature and in essence. He simply served a different role in the play. Anything different. This is what I mean by we could we could. Teach this verse and be done. He didn't need it. The rest of his arguments, anything, anything different than that would be heresy. You see, if, as many would say, this idea of male headship and female uh, submission in the church, if it were wrong, there would be no way he could apply those three statements to the same principle. It would not hold true to say that Christ is under the authority of God if Christ was then somehow necessarily inferior to the Father. He is not. I think those were givens for Paul. Christ is the head of every man, yeah. God is the head of Christ, yes. Well, wait a second, there's no way then. If, if Paul, you're equating the headship of men and women to the headship that the Father had over the Son... What we know about the father and the son is that they're equal in value and worth. They're equal in their very essence and nature. One is not better or superior to the other. But they perform different tasks and roles and they have different responsibilities in the, in the body of the Trinity. 
as we apply that to manhood and womanhood, what does this one verse say? That yes, there is headship. Yes, there is submissive role. We have different parts to play. But it's, it's all on the same level ground. It's all on the same level ground. Now that verse sets the tone for the whole rest of the passage. Let me show you a couple chunks here. Four through six, he's going to give the specific issue in Corinth. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful, and it is in this uh, day and time that Paul's speaking, for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, well, let her cover her head. Uh, that's a mouthful. Let me, let me briefly explain to you what's going on here. In this culture, and it's not too unlike ours, but in this culture, in a public venue, when a woman would stand up or a man would stand up to pray or prophesy, uh, and by the way, uh, Paul gives authority for women to pray and prophesy here in public gatherings for worship. All right. So again, is Paul chauvinistic? Is he sliding the role of women? No, not even in the church. Okay. Uh, we'll come back maybe to that another week. But in this situation, you had in the church of Corinth, you had essentially rebellious men and women. Specifically here, he's going to deal with rebellious women who threw off the uh, cultural constructs of their day that were representative symbols of the spiritual truths. You see, the women in Paul's day would wear some sort of shawl or they would wear their hair up to cover their head, not just as a uh, not just as a. Uh, a fashion, but they would do it as a statement of the authority and headship principle that was built into their divine distinctive design. And so when a woman would stand to pray or she would stand to prophesy in a public uh, situation where she was representing God to pray, meaning to speak to God on behalf of men or to prophesy to speak uh, to men on behalf of God. When a woman would do that, Paul says she has the right and authority to do that. And he affirms that. But she has to do it in the right way. She cannot do it in a rebellious spirit. And one of the ways they were being rebellious in that way was to do it and throw off every cultural construct that that day and that time had put upon them. Namely, that they would wear something over their head as a symbol that there was an authority over them in their womanhood. Specifically, manhood. And so you had women in uh, the day of Corinthian church who would stand to pray and they would either wear their hair down and long, which was a sign of, um, well, uh, how can I say it? Um, um, prostitutes would wear their hair down long and flowing to grab the attention of, of other men. Or uh, if they did not wear something over their head, uh, it was a symbol of straight out, all out rebellion. Okay, so you had very liberal uh, feminist women in the Corinthian church, not much unlike our day and time. Okay, who would throw off anything that might indicate their femininity or their natural distinctive design that God had built into them. At the same time, throwing off the symbol that showed that they are submissive, not just to the headship of male leadership or male headship, but submissive to the God who said they have this role and men have this role. All right. So uh, I know that's a little bit confusing. That doesn't directly apply in the in the specific 
issue to us, but I'll show you here in a little bit how it might apply, at least in principle, to us. But here's what you need to know. Paul's dealing with a group of people specifically who are being rebellious against God's originally designed role relationship for manhood and womanhood. And he's got to address it. And he starts out by saying, look, the idea of headship and submission, it's it's not unique to manhood and womanhood. It goes all the way back to the Trinity. Verse three, Christ has been doing it since the beginning. In fact, one of the things I didn't point out to you for verse three is that Christ actually plays both roles in the play. Do you notice that? Man, he gets to play the headship role. Christ is the head of every man. But ladies, guess what? He also gets to play the submissive role. God is the head of Christ. All right. He is the he is the absolute exemplary model for both of us. For those who get to play headship role and those who willingly and lovingly play a submissive role in life. Manhood, womanhood. Christ did it both. He's always our example. He's left nothing that he is not an example for whatever he calls us to women. Even if he calls you to being lovingly submissive to a bonehead husband. He was willingly submissive. Not to a bonehead father, right? And you might be thinking, well, you know, he got to submit to a perfect, holy creator, father, God. Don't forget, he had the most difficult role of submission in all of humanity. While being fully man, he faced a cross in his death. In the garden had to say, Father, not my will, but your will. The most difficult role of submission ever was accomplished by Jesus. Ladies, be encouraged. So he deals with a specific issue. And then in verse 7, he goes back to creation. It's where we started this series. Here's another reason. Male headship, female submissiveness. It's not a cultural thing alone. We find it in the Trinity. Christ did it on both ends. It's right and it's good. It's not just a cultural thing. It's not just about what you wear on your head. But it goes all the way back to creation, he says. For a man, verse 7, ought not to have his head covered, since he is in the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 7 and verse 10, he repeats the truth. Men ought not. Women ought. Now, let me let me give you a little more information about what it means to have authority on your head. The symbolism here is, is that when they wear something on their head, there is something over them. There is an authority over them. When a woman does it, she is recognizing She is recognizing the authority that God has placed over her, namely manhood. And she is recognizing the authority of God, putting her in that position. If a man were to wear something on his head, what he was saying is that there is an authority over him beyond God or instead of God. So when a man would stand up and pray or prophesy and he would wear something on his head, if he wore something on his head, Paul says he disgraces not only his head, but he disgraces his head, his authority by doing so. When a woman doesn't, she disgraces her head, literally, and figuratively, she disgraces her male headship. And in both cases, they they, they thwart the original design of God. So in verse 7, man ought not. In verse 10, woman ought to have that symbol. And then in 8 and 9, sandwiched between those two oughts and ought not, he gives gives the, 
the reason. And here it is. Verse 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. You remember in Genesis, we saw that woman comes from man. He was, he was put to sleep. She was taken from his side. When he awoke, Adam named her. This is woman. She is flesh of my flesh. She comes from him. Is there an authority of manhood over womanhood? Yes, there is. Is it a cultural construct? Is it just based on the traditions of men? No. Paul goes all the way back to creation. He says, remember, it's the way God designed it. Woman was taken from man. Not only is she from man, but in the next verse, verse 9, he says she is for the man. Her original creation was for man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Remember what God said? He looked at Adam and he said, this isn't going to do. This isn't going to do. He needs help. He needs help. And it's interesting, whichever way you want to put the emphasis on that, ladies, uh, you should feel better. He needed some help. God said, I'm going to create woman for him. I will make a helper, what, suitable for him. And so where does Paul go here? He goes to the Trinity. He deals with the specific issue in the church. What's going on? Where is the rebellion showing itself? And then he goes back to creation. He says, ladies, you were from man and you are for man. Sandwiched there in between. Verse 7, man, therefore you ought not. Ladies, you ought. 11 and 12, we get a, we get a qualification, if you will. Two great verses that did not need to be in this text. Again, I think the Spirit intercedes on behalf of of Paul. He puts two beautiful, qualifying, harmonious verses in here that now after we've gone a few verses, we've gotten past verse three. Maybe we've forgotten that Christ is not inferior to God, the father. Maybe we've forgotten that truth. Maybe we've gotten caught up in our flesh and we don't like what he said here about what women should do and what men should do. We don't even like that he's gone back to creation in seven through ten to talk about that man is, uh, man, uh, woman is from man and for man. Maybe we don't, our flesh may not like that. So he, he comes back in eleven and twelve and he gives us two more beautiful verses lest we, lest we mistake the heart of the apostle and more so the heart of God. Verse eleven. However, in the Lord. However, make no mistake, don't, don't take this the wrong way, church at Corinth. Let's be clear. However, even though, ladies, you are from man and for man in your created order and design, make no mistake in the Lord, meaning that in, in Christ, as we are in Christ and as Christ is in us, as we are joint heirs with Jesus, look at what he says. Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. You see what he does here? He says, listen, let's just stop for a second. Let's make this absolutely clear. Do we serve different purposes as we relate to each other in manhood and womanhood? Absolutely we do. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that because it's been going on that way. There's been authority and headship. There's been submissiveness. There's been leadership. In all areas, even back to the Trinity, it can't be bad. It doesn't mean you're inferior. Let's let's work these things out in our day and time as we need to. Let's be clear in our culture. 
Men need to be men. Women need to be women. We need to embrace masculinity. We need to embrace femininity. Creation testifies to it. But listen, let's be clear. In the Lord, one is not independent of the other. And his point is that we both need each other. We both need each other. Verse 11, neither is the woman independent of man, nor is the man independent of the woman. The emphasis on nor is the man independent of the woman. He knows that he's putting you ladies in a tough spot. He knows that. He reminds the men, guys, you're not independent of your better half either. You need her. If we had to sum this teaching up in a word, uh, we'd call it we'd call it complementarianism. Okay, big word. Complementarianism. It's not with an I, not complement, but complement with an E. It means that we complete each other in some sense. We we fit together our manhood and womanhood as God has designed us distinctive. They work together. They are not independent. They are dependent on each other. And as they come together, they fit nicely. We get strength and we get beauty. And it's a it's a beautiful thing. We've talked about this as a ballet, as a as a two person ballet. There's a lead and there's a follow. But when they come together and they're not stepping on toes, it's a beautiful thing. Paul reminds them of this. Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. He makes it even uh, more clear in verse 12. For as the woman originates for the man, he's already said that, right? She's from him, taken from his side. Now look at, look at what he adds to it now. And man, I think, he's, I think he's being clear to us in these verses. She doesn't just originate from us. So also the man has his birth through the woman. What does he mean by that? The first woman came from where? The first man. She was from him and for him. But guess what? Ever since, ever since, every man has come where? Through woman. Isn't that good? In, in, the, in the divine balance of God, he set it up so that there is, there is an equality. There is a beauty. There is no imbalance. If we just if we just listen to what the Apostle Paul says, if we if we read the word, we don't come off chauvinistic. We don't come off legalistic. There is a balance. And if we miss that, the last phrase of verse 12. Leaves no room for any doubt. In the end, all things originate from God. All things originate from God. 13. Judge for yourselves then. It's as if Paul throws off his apostolic authority here for just a moment. And he just appeals to reason. He just appeals to nature. And look at what he says here. This is his final clip at making his point. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, let's go to nature in verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be intentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So what does he do? He goes to the order of all the universe. God's the head of every man. Man's the head of every woman. Uh, God is the head of Christ. Then he goes to society and he says, listen, we can't throw off these cultural symbols. We can't we can't get rid of these traditions of men lest we confuse 
everything we stand for. We have to we have to consider them. We have to be mindful of them. We have to be respectful of them. In fact, if we go back to creation, he says, it says the same thing to us. It leads us to the conclusion that there is a there is a need for headship. There is a need for submission. He says we're not independent of each other. And then he just he just kind of sits back and he says, listen, um, to some degree, there is something that God builds into us. There is some instinctive wiring. There's something in our very nature, apart from everything else that he's argued from. There's something, he says, in our very nature that if we just look and he, and he goes back to the specific issue at hand, that you had women who weren't wearing their hair up or wearing the shawl over their head as they were supposed to. You had some women who were shaving their head and putting themselves uh, in line as a prostitute or a complete rebel. They were looking like a man would look. They were throwing off their femininity. And he goes back to that and he says, listen, uh, there's even something in us, isn't there? Corinth, uh, judge for yourselves. There's even something in us that, that says when we see a guy who has hair like a girl in that context, it doesn't seem natural. When we see a woman who shaves off her head, which he would qualify and say that it is actually the glory God has given her. It is her it is her symbol of femininity. And, and let, me, let me stop here and say that um, you can't throw this portion of the passage out as merely cultural. I don't think because he argues from our natural instinct that he says that judge for yourselves. God, it seems that God has wired it into us this way, that by nature, not just by what society says is normal. When we see a guy with hair that is flowing like a girl, it, something seems off. When we see a girl who has shaved her head, something just seems off. I, I don't know that you can. I don't know that even in society you can completely get away from that. All right. But understand the point is that when we collectively gather in the name of God, we are believers together. If we have those who are throwing off whatever symbols that generally are accepted as masculine and feminine, we throw a monkey wrench into this whole manhood, womanhood design thing that God has set up from top to bottom. And I think the, the forest for the trees in 1 Corinthians 11 for Paul is let's not do anything, church. Let's not do anything. Even if even if our flesh tells us we have some right or freedom to do it, let's not do anything that would confuse the way God has designed us from creation, that would confuse our society that we live in. Let's not do anything that would that would disrupt or Speak against the divine design that God has inherently put into each of us. I, I think that's his overall point. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me let me try and let me try and give you an idea of what this means for us. Does this mean that ladies, you need to start wearing shawls to church, and that you can't wear short hair, and, and that guys, uh, if you grow your hair long, uh, I'm going to you know call you effeminate, and you're going to be disrupting the whole manhood womanhood God's design thing? Uh, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying though is, be aware. Be aware in our culture, okay, of what the accepted norms are. And if we, in a contentious or rebellious spirit, start to throw off those cultural constructs for our own freedom's sake, we further or we potentially do damage to what, what is more important. 
that there are that there are distinctive truths to manhood and womanhood. Now, uh, you wonder maybe why we go into this stuff. I mean, somebody asked me at the beginning of this series, why, why do we deal with these kind of things? I mean, is this really important? I mean, we, we don't even have to. We're not even worried about, you know, wearing something on our head or not something on our head. That's not our culture. Uh, it, it relates, okay? It relates. You may have to think, what, what, are the things that, what are the things that would be confusing? I mean, can we do things that would be confusing to the world? If the, if the lost person were sitting in our services and one of our elders were to come in wearing a dress and stand up to the mic and start teaching, that, that could never happen, right, Michael? Couldn't, couldn't happen? Couldn't happen? It might. Vic, just trying to lighten the mood a little bit here. It's a Halloween picture. Don't worry. He's all right. Um, but if, if Vic comes in dressed in a, in a dress, is there anything necessarily wrong with Vic wearing a dress? I mean, something in my nature says there is. OK, but no, there's not. If Preston grows his hair out down, you know, to his rear end, is there anything intrinsically wrong with that? I'd say maybe from the text. Ladies, if you decide to buzz your hair like G.I. Jane, is there something intrinsically wrong with that? Maybe. Uh, You could make possibly that argument, and and some would debate that with me. That's not the point. The point is, uh, take my life, let it be wholly consecrated to thee. Take my moments, take my days. That's the attitude I I felt this morning. The attitude we need to have is, let's not do anything to disrupt. Let's not do anything to draw away from what God has what God has designed us to be as men and women, because what's at risk is not worth the risk. The last message of this series, I'm, I'm holding back from preaching it every time I preach, because we're going to tell you exactly why all this is important. There's something bigger at stake here than just how you want to wear your hair, or what kind of clothes you want to wear, etc. But we ought to be mindful of those things. And if there are those who, who want to be contentious and throw off all cultural constructs, etc., well, listen. Let me just say, uh, there is a place for headship and submission all the way back to the Trinity. It is a good thing. It is a right thing. It is, it's, not a, it's not a chauvinistic thing. It's not a repressive thing. It can't be, lest Christ be inferior to the Father. It can't be. It's needed. And in fact, the whole reason this series started is because when we preached through Proverbs 31... The Proverbs 30 woman, she saw that it was good. She sensed that it was right. When she was acting out of her divinely inspired nature, she sensed that it was good and right. And that's my prayer, especially for our ladies, that that you live in a way that, that you understand that you're acting out in the way God has designed you. Men, that we live out and we act out our manhood in the way God has designed us. Because, listen, we are most satisfied in that way when we live according to truth. When we try it our own way, we are not complete. We're not satisfied. The best thing for us, men, and the best thing for us, ladies, and the best thing for our marriages, the best thing for our church as we interact as men and women, is to do it God's way. That's, that's the bottom line. And so when I said this morning, as we get into this passage, I mean, it's tough. and There's a lot to really unpack. And I've, I've done a completely insufficient job of, of giving the whole cultural idea here. But the point is that When we do it God's way, when we have an attitude that says, God, we trust you, that you you're right in this. That our ways are not best. Well, it works out best for us. And in the end, we're going to see it works out best for God's glory. 
Let me, let me close. Let me read you something here. Friday, maybe some of you saw this. The Associated Press posted this article. The uh, headline was this. Lutheran gay clergy vote tests mainline churches. You see this? In breaking down barriers, restricting gays and lesbians from the pulpit, the nation's largest Lutheran denomination has laid down a new marker in a debate over the direction of mainline Protestant Christianity, a tradition that once dominated American religious life. By voting Friday to allow gays and lesbians in committed relationships to serve as clergy, because up to this point, uh, you could serve as clergy uh, according to their uh, rules. You could serve as clergy, but you couldn't be in a committed relationship. You had to be you could be gay, lesbian, transgendered, uh, bisexual, but you had to be celibate in all those in all those things, which is interesting. By voting Friday to allow gays, lesbians, transgendered, bisexuals, in committed relationships to now actually serve as clergy, the 4.7 million member evangelical Lutheran church in America will either show how a church can stand together amid differences or become another casualty of division over sexual morality in the Bible, observers say. Quote, we're going to be living in tension and ambiguity for a longer time, partly because the culture has shifted, says David Steinmetz of Duke Divinity School, professor of Christian history. The question is whether the mainline church, that's the rest of us, will shift alongside or will it decide that the more welcoming attitude towards homosexuality is wrong, he said. Uh, does this series have any relevance? Yeah. You say, what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 11? About 30 years ago to 40 years ago, conservative Christian leaders started sounding the alarm. That if we start to go down the road where we take away the distinctiveness between manhood and womanhood, we would end up here. And we're ending up here. And what was said 30 years ago was, no, that's not the case. If, if, we, if, we, if we say that men and women are, are completely equal, and we can all do the same things, and God hasn't designed us differently to play different parts and roles, etc. If we do that, then we say one's inferior to the other, so we can't say that. And so we've got to put everybody on the same playing field. And now men can serve just like women can serve in the church. Uh, women can be elders, and uh, ladies, you can be the head of your home. And in society in general, there's no difference. God hasn't, hasn't designed anything into you different. Uh, we can just say that, and that'll be fine. It won't lead to anything else. And there were people who were standing up and saying, no, it'll lead to something else. It's a slippery slope. And it's leading to other things. It's leading to other things. They needed a two-thirds vote to pass that. Uh, they made it. 66.67% was the vote. I read one article that there was a longtime Lutheran. Uh, and this doesn't implicate all Lutherans, by the way. Uh, just by sheer vote numbers alone, you, you can guess that. There was one report that said uh, outside the Minneapolis Convention Center where this a congregational meeting was going on. The the uh, article read that there was one longtime Lutheran uh, ordained minister on the phone weeping to his wife, uh, saying, now we're going to have our children learning in Sunday school that their parents can be homosexual and that's perfectly fine. And things are crumbling. Things are crumbling. We adapt in this way, well, then we adapt in this way. We compensate in this way, and then we compensate in this way. You know what I would say? I would say, hold firm to the traditions. Not the traditions of men. Hold firm to the teaching of the Word, the will of God, the design of God. 
Uh, let me give you the rest of the story. The conference there in Minneapolis at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Maybe some of you saw this report as well. It's, it was all week. On Wednesday at 2 o'clock, this piece of new uh, business was to come up to begin discussion and to be voted on. Wednesday, 2 o'clock, on their itinerary, I pulled it up. Their itinerary for the meeting, Wednesday, 2 o'clock, this social agenda on sexuality was to be brought before the entire body for discussion, and then it would lead to the vote on Friday. At 1.50, downtown Minneapolis, a tornado, a very rare occurrence in downtown Minneapolis, walks right through downtown. I'm just, this is a report. Walks right through downtown at 2 o'clock exactly. Tears up all the tents around the convention center where they had their whole convention set up. Just flips it all over and knocks the steeple and the cross off the church that they were using, the Lutheran church they were using, right across the street. At 2 o'clock. These things are worth our discussing. They're worth our tracking through. Let's pray. Lord, for us to teach these things in a in a positive way is much needed to teach it from a perspective of love. Is much needed. The authority and submission. In each of these cases. That Christ is the head of man, a man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. All of them are based on love, not tyranny. The Father sent Christ out of love, not under compulsion, to redeem the world. The Son submitted to the Father out of love, not compulsion. Christ loved the church so much that he died for it, and he rules the church in love, not in tyranny. In response, the church submits to him in love. Likewise, men in general, and husbands in particular, should exercise their authority in love, not in tyranny. Men do not have authority because they are of greater worth or greater ability, but because simply God's wise design and loving will has set it up that way. Women are to respond in loving submission as they are designed to do. It's not a matter of relative dignity or worth, but of task and responsibility and of divine design.